This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Our fearless leader, Darren, is uh, taking a group of young men and horseback riding and camping out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so I will be uh, leading us this morning as we study the Word. And I know uh, what you're thinking. Uh, one is... <clears throat> Why does Conduit have a parking pastor? Um, And more importantly, why are we letting the parking pastor speak this morning? Well, I do a couple other things other than hang out in the parking lot on Sundays, Um, although that is my current passion and love. Um, I... uh, I do uh, small groups and uh, discipleship around here, and uh, my wife and I and our family, we've been attending Conduit uh, for, it would be seven years coming up at the end of May, and uh, so we we just... Uh, we found this this church um, ended up as neighbors to Mo and Jenny Teeman, uh, and God led us here, and uh, we've just we've never left, and uh, I've had the opportunity to be on staff part time uh, for a while now, and I'm thankful for this opportunity uh, to speak. And so we're going to spend some time in Colossians chapter two today, Colossians chapter two, and as we're turning there, I've asked my friend Ernie Smith to come and read the chapter to us. So we're going to read the whole chapter. All right, hang with us. Right? I think it's good to hear God's word be read aloud. Um, and maybe, you know, uh, you've read this passage before, you're somewhat familiar with it. I would just encourage you today, uh, maybe just close your eyes and listen. Actively listen and let the words of our God and through this letter that Paul wrote to this tiny little church in a town called Colossae just soak into you this morning. So Ernie, if you'll come and uh, read uh, Colossians chapter 2 for us. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. What's all that? I'll be all right. (laughs) I get excited when I read the word. All right, he said, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's Mysterious plans, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ. Jesus as your Lord. Now here we're going to see something. You must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Amen. Mm, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. Hallelujah. Ain't that exciting? (laughs) 
For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to a new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Mm. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Woo! Whew. That's something to shout about. All right? Whew. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Whew. He shamed him publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Hallelujah. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or worship of the angels, saying they have had visions about these things. For their sinful minds have made them proud, mm. and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Wow, there's more? You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as you know, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such a rules are, are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Amen. If you haven't met Ernie, you need to. He is an old school Assembly of God minister, and he loves Jesus. Yeah, right? I knew it would be hard for him to get through that and not just get a little preaching in there. So let's close in prayer. No, um, I'm a little, I want to add just a little bit. Uh, Last week was Easter. What a great service we had, wasn't it? Man. Outdoors. I got a little too much sun. That's right, it gives me nice color for this week. Um, and as I was thinking about, we're sort of in between series. We just finished up a, a series on the spiritual gifts. We spent a couple weeks focusing on Easter. And, and then next week, Darren's going to start a series on the life of Joseph, which you won't want to miss. And so I kind of got to do whatever... Uh, you know, I felt like the Lord was laying on my heart. And I've been camping out in the book of Colossians for, for quite some time now. And, and as I was thinking more, uh, you know, about what I should teach on, um, I began to think about just the stories of people, Christian leaders, Christian artists, who have either walked away from their faith in the last few years or have been exposed for major moral failure. And especially those that have just completely walked away, it makes me scratch my head because I was like, how do you get there? How do you go from believing in a God to not believing in a God at all? 
And my heart breaks. I don't judge those people. I'm I'm not mad at them. My heart breaks because somewhere along the way, what they were sold turned out not to be true. And because they're confused and there's no way of knowing, they're just done with it altogether. And I came across this quote that I think kind of sums up where we might be in the American church today. It's by Dallas Willard. It says, in our churches, we have, we have multitudes of people who are crowding around Jesus, but they are not touching him. We have multiple people who are spectators. They are connoisseurs of opinions. They love to think nice thoughts and to test the truth with those thoughts. They are doctrinally correct. There is not a hair out of place, but they have never touched Jesus. And I want to stand before you and say that I am just as guilty as anybody else of being someone who has crowded around Jesus but was not touching him. And unfortunately for me, it took me blowing my life up, reaching the absolute end of my rope, and looking up, and the only place I could reach out to was Jesus. And I said to God, God, if you're real, then there has to be a path out of this. And as I hear the stories of people who walk away from, from God and just say, I'm done with it, I'm done with whatever, I, I get it. I would walk away from their God too. But I would submit to you that their God that they're following is not the God that I see in the scriptures. And maybe you're here this morning and your faith is hanging by a thread. Maybe you're wondering, if, is it all worth it? What are we doing Is it more than just showing up on Sunday morning, giving a little bit of money, and praying that my kids make it through high school sex, drug, and alcohol free? And I'm here to tell you that there's good news. There is so much more. And Paul shows us the way here in Colossians chapter two. Young people especially, I pray that you'll give me a listening ear this morning. My heart breaks for you because I feel like you're being sold to faith, and not necessarily from our church family, but from the wider Christian community that wants to increase and put just demands and labels on you and tell you how to live and what Jesus looks like. And I want you to know Jesus is calling out to you that he believes that you can hear these words. Paul is writing to you too. How do I know that? Well, in Colossians chapter three, he's gonna say, children, obey your parents which means that he's expecting children to be in the room and having heard chapters one and two as well. And so it doesn't matter how young you are, you can follow Jesus and he desires to have a relationship with you. So let's dive into Colossians chapter two. A little bit of background, this church or this town is located near Laodicea, which is of of Revelation three fame. Uh, and it's also next to, near Hierapolis, so this sort of formed a tri-city area in the modern-day uh, country of Turkey, or what was known in the Roman world as Asia Minor. Paul did not start this church, um, and as a matter of fact, as uh, he just, you know, we found out in verse one, he has not met them up to this point. Uh, but he's writing to them as sort of a preemptive strike because he's like, I want you to keep solid with the faith that you've learned. There are people that will come and try and add stuff to you, and I want you to be aware, and I want you to be watching out for that. The church was probably started uh, from some of Paul's disciples while he spent about three years in Ephesus, which is located near the coast of Asia Minor. In chapter one, 
because we're sort of going to drop in the middle of this letter, right? But in chapter one, basically Paul is establishing the supremacy of Christ over all things. There's a beautiful Christ poem in verses 15 through 19, which we'll reference here in a little bit, but talking about how Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and because of his death and resurrection, God has given him first place and he is ultimately in charge of everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He's the ruler over it all. And even though I really want to hit everything in this chapter, I can't because we got two more services coming after you. But I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on this passage this week. But we're going to hit the highlights. And there's two things that I want you to know today from this passage. Two things that I think Paul is telling us. One, all you need is Jesus. And two, don't let anyone convince you otherwise. All we need is Jesus. And don't let anyone tell you different. Starts out in verses two and three. Let's look at it together. It says, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is writing to a group of people that would have been familiar with these ancient mystery cults. And this was a group of people that, that would try to, they would incorporate pagan and sometimes Jewish ideas, and they would try to tell people that they could have these just like extra, re, you know, super biblical uh, religious experiences, that they could achieve a, a higher plane of spiritual enlightenment. And they, all they had to do was deny themselves and show dedication and promise, and they could be initiated into these mystery religions. And Paul says, no. It's already been revealed. Everything that you could ever want to know about why we're here and what we're doing, what God's plan and purpose is, is in Jesus. Period. And he's going on to establish why in verse 9. He says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Now, we get the idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man, right? That's something that our Western sort of evangelical um, mindset, we, we understand that. But I want to encourage you to let's, let's take maybe just a little bit of a deeper look and, and, and kind of get a little more of the context of what Paul is doing. So Paul is a Jewish man raised in Israel. He was, as Philippians 3 tells us, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and keeping the law faultless. He was as dedicated a Jew as you could possibly be. And so when he says that the fullness of God dwells in a human body, he's using temple language. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 15 and 19. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Jump down to verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So Paul's just reiterating what he's already established in chapter one, that he's using temple language here. That Jesus is the culmination of the temple. So let's do a little bit of history in our, our Bible, right? So we go back to the Old Testament. The first building that was erected to house the Spirit of God was the tabernacle, right? And tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent, okay? And inside this tent was a place called the Holy of Holies, right? Which would become the, the, the uh, blueprint for 
the future temple that Solomon would build. And that's where God met with his people. And the first time they erected this tabernacle, God's presence came and it was so amazing, so glorious, so awesome that the priests could not even enter because it was so incredible, okay? This tabernacle traveled with the nation of Israel, right? Because if you're, you know, I remember as a kid growing up, I'm like, well, it had to be a tent because they had to, you know, break it down and, and carry it off to the next place and then set it up. And they, the, the nation of Israel would camp around the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be in the center and it was this visible sign of God's presence with his people. Fast forward, we now have a kingdom. David is king and he says to himself, man, I live in this really nice pad while God dwells in a tent. That doesn't seem right. And so he says, I want to build a temple, a magnificent dwelling for my God. And Nathan the prophet says, you go do that. God is with you. And then God confronts Nathan that night after Nathan goes home and says, did I ask for a temple? Did you know that? God did not ask for the permanent structure to be built. I would argue he didn't want it. Because one, he's a humble God and he's content to live in a tent. But I believe God allowed Solomon, right? He tells David, you're a man of war. I can't allow you to build my temple, but your son who will be a man of peace will be allowed to build the temple. So Solomon builds the temple, gathers all the finest materials. It's a beautiful structure. They build this temple, they get done with it, and Solomon is dedicating it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we, we hear Solomon finishes his prayer, and what happens? Fire falls from the sky. It consumes the sacrifice. God's presence fills the Holy of Holies. Again, so magnificent, so powerful that the priests can't enter to finish out their sacrifices because it's so awe-inspiring. That is the image that Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Colossae of what it means that that same presence is now in Jesus Christ and by extension, you and me. So when the veil rips after Jesus dies on the cross and exposes the Holy of Holies, we no longer just have access to the Father. The Father now dwells inside of us. Right? It gets you excited. Right? We're not just like going around like little minions trying to figure out what God wants and how do we make him happy. No, this is a God who wants to indwell his people. And so when Paul says to the church at Corinth in chapter 6, what? Don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's not making some sort of nice metaphor. He's being literal. And now, again, God didn't want that permanent structure, I believe because he knew that it was never meant to be a permanent thing. And he knew that his people would unfortunately elevate it to a status it was never intended to hold. The temple, really the tabernacle, was always just a pointer to Jesus. And we by extension are now his temple. And the temple is no longer tied to one place, one location, one nationality, one people group, but it's for every tribe every tongue, every nation, and it spreads all over the world, and it is an unstoppable force. It can't be stopped. And I believe Paul had his own personal journey with this. And we often don't think of that, right? We think that like the apostles just some sort of got some sort of like spiritual download, and they were like, you know, doctrinally correct from the word go. But Paul had his own journey with this. I think this illustrates why he's so passionate about the supremacy of Jesus in his life. You see, Paul, when he went to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he gives this message on a place called Mars Hill. 
And that's a message that has been studied by Bible students, myself alike, when I was in Bible college. I'm like, man, that is a brilliant message. He uses their philosophers, their poets, and he's trying to convince them of, of you know, this Hebrew God, and it's brilliant. But as I learned from Pastor Darren, as brilliant as it was, not many people came to Christ at Athens. And as far as we know, no church was established, certainly not by Paul at Athens. And so Paul travels from Athens to Corinth, and as my wife was studying the book of 1 Corinthians in the ladies' Bible study this fall, she pointed out something to me. She said that there was a progression. Paul changes from Athens to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I came to you seeking to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that continued throughout the rest of his life. In Philippians chapter three, Paul lists out all of his qualifications. I just went over them. He's like, I've got, I had it all. I brought everything to the table. God, you're so lucky to have him on my team. And what Paul realized was, no, that, all those, those accomplishments, all of my abilities, all of my talents is just one big pile of steaming hot human waste. King James translates it dung. I would use a different word, but there are children present. And it would not be too strong. And what Paul realized is that the only thing of value that he brought to the table in any relationship was Jesus. And that's something that God has challenged me with. It's not about my knowledge. It's not about my passion. It's not about my dedication. I have repented of my arrogance time and time again of thinking, God, you are so blessed to have me on your side. Apparently, I'm the only one in the room. That's fine. Um, all we need is Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I want you to look. Well, he kind of walks down through. There's, there's different things. Uh, in verse 4, he says, don't be deceived. Verse 8, he says, let no one take you captive. And what's interesting is Paul sort of takes a literary shot at, at the Jewish uh, people here. The Greek word for captive is syllagogia, which is a lot like the Greek word for synagogue, right? So that's just in case you want to look smart at a party. Um, so Paul takes a shot at the Jewish uh, people there. He says, don't let anyone condemn you in verse 16. And then verse 18, let's read this together again. It says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with his joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about the things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Again, as I mentioned, we have these ancient mystery cults, but we also have a Jewish presence. And you're thinking, well, how is there a Jewish presence? I thought this is a Gentile community. Well, because of the diaspora, there were Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean. And they had formed little you know, sections of towns so that they could um, observe Torah and Sabbath together. And so they would establish synagogues. And as you read the book of Acts, Likely, it was when Paul got to a town, he would go right to the synagogue. Why? Because they already believed in the one true God. So it was a natural place to communicate, hey, this Messiah that we've been waiting for is here. He's come. It's Jesus. 
and then churches would be established. But the problem was, is that as these churches got going, it was hard for Jewish people to let go of their tradition, let go of the law keeping, let go of the Sabbath. And so they would try to incorporate those things onto new Jewish believers. And Paul spends a lot of his time writing these letters, basically communicating, no, those things were just pointers. They were symbols. They were signs. We no longer need them because we already have Jesus. He's arrived. I feel like a lot of us can relate to that idea, right? I mean, we found conduit, some of us, because we've experienced spiritual abuse in other places. We've experienced churches and ministries that have tried to add to Jesus. I, mean, I grew up in a tradition where, you know, it was like, yes, Jesus, but also like, you know, are you winning souls? And the pressure was, you know, like, I mean, you gotta tell everybody. Cashier, you're like, do you know where you would go if you, you know, if you died right now? Which is not the most nicest way to introduce someone to Jesus, in my opinion. And I remember sitting there going, but I'm six years old. Like, why, you know, feeling guilt and shame, right? It was like a lot of, a lot of Bible reading pressure, right? Read through the Bible in a year. My dad, and I think he still does this, he reads through the Bible four times a year. Yeah, I know. That's a lot. I have read through the whole Bible, but not in a year, ever. So if, that, if you're feeling that shame and pressure, hey, let me just release you. Now, it's a good thing, don't get me wrong, right? But anyone that tries to add anything to Jesus, missing the point, right? And then why do we do this? Well, for one, pride, right? Paul identifies it there. It's because of pride. We want to figure out a way like, okay, how am I doing compared to everybody else, right? I'm guilty of that. Well, I'm more spiritual than that person, Right? And then what unfortunately what happens is that pride grows and it becomes a, 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 an instrument for power and control. And Paul says, don't give in to it. Now we may think like, oh yeah, I would reject that 100%. But what about the ways that we maybe subconsciously or unconsciously add to Jesus and we don't even realize it? And we do this in a variety of ways, whether it's doctrines or famous pastors and teachers, theological systems, denominations, politics, or we just simply want to compare our commitment to Christ compared to other people. And Paul says, don't do it. You're missing the point. The point isn't, am I more spiritual than person X or Y? The point is, am I pressing into Jesus? What does he want for me? So, Let's go back to point one, verse six and seven. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him. I love that phrase. And let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness or gratitude. So what does it mean to look like Jesus? And we throw that phrase around a lot, Right? Well, I want to look like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But do we really know like, what, what that means? Like, what is it that we're looking for? Like, how do you know that you're succeeding, right? I think for some of us, or maybe perhaps even most of us, I know it was certainly true for me for a period of time, when we say that, what we usually think of when we think of Jesus is we think of his sinlessness, his perfection, the thing that we can't even come close to touching, his sacrifice on the cross, and so what we do is we make following Jesus about morality, which is a good thing, right? We, we want to be moral people. But can I just tell you that that's like entry-level stuff when it comes to Jesus. 
There is so much more to him and his character than just being sinless. Like, morality is like a level one boss in a video game, right? That, that as you're pursuing Jesus, like, it becomes like this, like, it's just not a thing. Like, you just go, right? You don't even worry about it anymore. And this became true for me that when I was at my lowest of low and I was, I was basically living a Christianity that was all about the gospel of sin management, right? White knuckling my way every day, praying, dear God, don't let me screw up again today. And I came across this verse in Galatians chapter five, verse 16. It says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I remember when I was at my lowest point, I read that verse and I said, God, that sounds like a promise and I'm going to claim it. I'm going to choose to walk by the Spirit because if I'm walking by the Spirit, then I don't have to worry about what my flesh wants to do. And I found that to be true over and over and over again. That when I choose to walk in the Spirit, like, sin's nothing to me because it can never deliver what it promises anyway and what I have in Christ is so much better than anything it has to offer me. Certainly we need guardrails in place. I'm not suggesting that we just throw them off and be like, well, I'm just not gonna sin anymore, right? That's foolishness. But if the only reason I'm not doing certain things, certain sins in my life is because guardrails are there, then I've missed the point. If I don't love my wife enough to keep my eyes from looking at things that I shouldn't be looking at, because God's doing a transforming work in me, but I'm only, it's only there because I have some app or, or software on my computer. I'm failing to be transformed. I'm struggling with just a gospel of morality, and it's impossible to keep up. I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing the guys from, um, there's a podcast out there, some of you may be familiar with, it's called the Bad Christian Podcast. Um, and it sounds like a great name. I was like, well, I'm really intrigued by this. And it's this group of guys, they formed a, a, um, a Christian metal band and their questions are sincere and they're genuine uh, men who are really just trying to pursue um, what they believe to be the truth. But as I listen to them, over, the thing that they're walking away from is this idea that, that they've got to pursue this morality that's impossible to keep up. I'm like, oh man, you've missed it. It's about transformation. The reason why Paul could say that verse with so much confidence is when you look back at verse 11 of chapter two in Colossians, he says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. And what was that? The cutting away of your sinful nature. When you chose to follow Jesus, he removed the power of your sinful nature over you. Now, do I still sin? Yes. Am I actively confessing? 100%. I won't experience the full reality of that until Jesus comes. But that doesn't mean that I can't experience some of that kingdom reality today by allowing God to transform me little by little. Slowly, surely, I press into Jesus. He's gonna go on to say in chapter three, verses one through four, set your minds on things above. Press into Jesus and I can tell you, I am more excited to study God's word and to spend time with him than I ever have been in my entire life. Because Jesus is so much more real to me. The parallels that I'm finding between the Old and New Testaments are mind-blowing. Oh, by the way, going back to Sapphire Falls, right? 
on the temple in the Old Testament? In the New Testament, the disciples are gathered in an upper room after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And what are they doing? They're praying, right? And what happens when they pray? Fire falls, spirit comes. Coincidence? I don't think so. That's God telling the world the church is the new temple. It takes time, commitment, surrender. Um, for my analytical friends, it's not linear. Right? There's no, I go to, from point A to point B to point C. What I've found is it's a meandering path. <laughs> and for my freewheeling, you know, go with the flow friends, it's also not random. Okay? Takes commitment. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, character is a slowly forming thing. You can no more force character on someone than you can force a tree to produce fruit when it isn't ready to do so. The person has to choose again and again to develop the moral muscles and skills which will shape and form the fully flourishing character. And in case you're wondering or maybe feeling you know, anxiety or pressure, like, oh, I gotta, I gotta will myself to do it. No. That's a trap. Dallas Willard also says this. He says, without God, you can't. But without you, he won't. And why is this so important? Because there is no neutral territory. In the minds of the biblical writers, you were either in the kingdom of darkness or you were in the kingdom of Jesus, period. And I think sometimes we sort of approach Christianity like, from, like we're sort of in this neutral place. Like I can choose to follow God, but I'm not really in the kingdom of darkness. Unfortunately, I have bad news for you. Because Colossians 1 clearly establishes that before we were in Christ, we were in the kingdom of darkness. And it's only after we come to Christ that he moves us, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves. And maybe you're here this morning and this whole following Jesus thing is a, like a foreign concept to you. Maybe you have questions about faith or God. Or, I want you to know this is a place where you're welcome to ask all the questions, even the ones you don't think we want to hear. And we would love to show you from the scriptures what it means to follow Jesus. But it's simply this, that there is a God. He's the creator over everything. And he loves you. And he loves you so much. He said, Jesus, to die for you. And he didn't just die, but we believe that he rose again, proving that he was who he said he was, and that his death on the cross was a sufficient payment for your sin and my sin so that we could be the indwelling place of almighty God and spread his love everywhere. And if you wanna know more about what it means to be a part of God's family, talk to someone. Don't let that tug at your heart go unaddressed. You can talk to me, talk to somebody you came with, but find out what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. So what do we do with this? Well, a practical step that I would encourage each of you to consider is to find a mentor. Find someone who will build a relationship with you and show you how to walk with Jesus. It's not something that just happens. I had a, I've had a mentor for the last three years and has done wonders for my life and my walk with Jesus. 
and I would encourage you to do the same. Join a small group. Find a community of people that are pursuing Jesus like you want to. And then this week, I would encourage you to do one thing. Pick one thing that you love about Jesus aside from his sinless nature. Pick one thing that you love about Jesus and ask God to begin to incorporate that characteristic in your life. Is it his kindness, his compassion, right? Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. And then even Paul says, not that I've already achieved all this or I've already been made perfect, but forgetting what is behind, I reached towards what is ahead. None of us are there. None of us will ever get there. But I promise you that there is peace to be found in this life here and now if we're just willing to press into Jesus. Here's the rest of that quote that I stated at the beginning. Dallas Willard says, they are not touching him because they are not desperate. You have to be desperate. And when you get desperate, all of a sudden you get God's attention. So I ask you, are you touching Jesus or are you just content to merely be crowding around him? Let's stand together. And may you move towards knowing nothing except Jesus, the Christ, the King, and him crucified. May your roots grow deep into Jesus and your life be built on him. And may you be desperate enough to touch Jesus on a daily basis and receive the freedom, peace, and rest he has to offer. Father, we are your children. May we surrender even more to your will because you have so much that you want to show us, so much that you want to do inside of us, and so many people that you want us to impact as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a blessed week.